Is that the thud of your heart? Or an approaching monster, all sharp talons and fiery breath? I bid you welcome to Liars League, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody who rolls more than a three, at least, wins. Tonight's theme is Dungeons and Dragons, so I hope you have lots of stamina, as well as strength, dexterity, intelligence, and charisma, as you join us in our quest deep beneath the phoenix. We'll have three stories in the first half, and then an interval where you can quaff ale and tell yarns of your daring exploits, before we resume with the infamous Lively Book Quiz. And two more fantastical tales. That could have gone a lot worse. As your dungeon master for the night, I must now order you to cast a spell of enchantment over your mobile devices so that they remain silent. We don't want to wake any sleeping dragons, do we? <laughs> and so, our first story for the evening will be Beneath the Palace by <laughs> Daniel Key, be read by Alex Woodall. Daniel is a professional computer nerd living in North London. He likes combat, combat sports and Belgian beer. His writing has previously been featured on Lies League Leicester and his mum's French. Alex has worked in comedy for the last 14 years, on stage, TV and radio. These DJs extensively around the country in clubs and festivals, and is half of the Coffin Dodgers disco. Interests include ballroom dancing, Native American art, and hunt selling. Alex! <laughs> Beneath the Palace by Daniel Key. I practiced my steps on the deck of the ship that brought me. On the morning we landed, I stood with my feet level and my knees bent toes precisely on the line between two planks. I took a moment to breathe deeply of the salty air and listen to the seagulls. I stepped with my right foot across myself so that its ball was precisely on the line two planks ahead of my left foot. I pivoted on that right foot, bringing my left to the same level as its brother as I turned around and faced the way I came. The deck was useful because in the dusty courtyard outside my house, I had to imagine the lines, and this can sometimes make my steps sloppy or imprecise. It is important to do things correctly. Anyway, the next part was to squat down on the balls of my feet, but staying only for an instant before I straightened my legs strongly and hinged at the waist, bowing deeply. Then I returned to the beginning, standing straight up and stepping across with my left foot. The same movement, but with an mirror image. Normally I repeat 50 of this first step, but the previous day the sea had been too choppy, so I aimed for 100. Usually I continue to the other six steps and the rest of the exercises, 
But on this morning, one of you, an islander sailor, accosted me at 76. Sorry to interrupt your dancing, shorty, he said, not unkindly, but we're about to go into the harbour. Some of you were there, I think, when we were welcomed on the dock. The king in his golden regalia, the drums and the procession swirling through your magnificent stone-clad streets and towering buildings. I'll admit, I was impressed, even overall. The others from the city, the six other men and the seven girls, huddled behind as I strode ahead. It was important I be noticed, so I spoke our greetings and, when the king seemed distracted, expressed our special concern for the health of his queen and our sorrow that we did not get to see her with him. That needle met a nerve, as it was meant to. His expression showed he had marked me, would select me first. At the feast, I sought out your princess, met her in the dance. Our palms together as we circled, I told her how beautiful she was. You are very beautiful too, though we island women usually prefer taller, she said. Then, glancing up at her father, the king, listless on his throne, it is a great pity for beautiful people to come so far only to die. I smiled, turned to the musicians, clapped, turned back to the princess. I spoke quietly so that only she could hear. Since I am not long in this world, your highness, you will excuse my directness. They say... It is your half-brother down there, born of your mother's adultery. Is that true? Flushing, she said, what does it matter to you? Whoever's brother he is, he'll spear you just the same. Perhaps, I said, as we promenaded down a row of the other dances. But I didn't come here to die. You came to the wrong shore in that case. These days, death is all we have. These days, but perhaps not for all the days to come. We twirled away from each other, then came back together, clasping hands once more. I looked directly into her eyes. I need your help, princess. I came here to kill a monster. The following dawn, the king selected me to go first into the maze, as I had hoped. His serving women bathed me magnificently, cleansing me with olive oil, and I rose from the bath glowing like a god. I was then both ritually clean, as a sacrifice should be, and clearly unarmed. They dressed me in this same robe, though then it was white like a wisp of a summer cloud, not dusty and torn. The king pronounced the challenge, reminded me that I could escape through another unguarded way down by the beach. Though, of course, no one had ever reached it. Then you put me into the maze and closed this heavy metal door behind me. Have you seen inside? It's very finely built. Not a hair could fit between the massive slabs that make up the walls and floor. The ceiling has minute cracks, though. Just enough light leaks through that those who have practiced seeing in the dark, as I have, can make their way. The corridor to the left of the entrance slopes very slightly downwards, and the faintest hint of salt can be smelled on the air. 
even the dullest person would know that way leads to freedom. Obviously, I turned right. I won't describe all the twists and turns I took through these identical corridors. The only sign of my adversary was an occasional coarse hair underfoot until eventually I smelled him, an earthy musk floating in the air. Following to where it was strongest, I came to a ragged woolen blanket rolled on the floor. It stank like a barn, and looking up from the spot where it lay, through a narrow fissure in the stonework, I could see tiny points of light. Stars, I realised after a moment, though it must have still been day. I'm not sure what made me turn. The creature stood at the end of the corridor. He was just as your princess described, the hair of his head and neck flowing smoothly into a thick pelt around his shoulders. But past the nipples, he was no hairier than an Easterner. He was finely built, broad at the shoulder and narrow at the waist, muscle and tendon bunching in the thighs, obviously of very great strength. He snorted once, the breath like smoke in the cool air, and regarded the chamber where I stood, his sleeping place. He turned his head a fraction to see me better. I did not run or scream, which perhaps puzzled him, and he gave a loom, even a low, even a moo, in which I thought I could hear the hint of a question mark. I moved my feet slightly, so that my toes were precisely on the line between the two stone slabs. He gave a slight bellow, and I saw that he was like most men in one thing at least. He could not simply begin to fight. He had to become angry first. I smiled at him broadly to quicken his rage. I didn't want to give him too much time to think, to ask himself why this pink little animal stood before him, apparently unafraid. I was, of course, very much afraid. He bellowed, louder this time, snorted and pawed the ground. Then he dropped to one hand like a sprinter on his blocks. I took in a brief, a deep, tingling breath of the cave air. He paused for a moment and charged, screaming like a man on fire, the dust swirling up with the wind of his passage. I stepped with my right foot across myself so that its ball was precisely on the line, one paving slab ahead of my left foot. Catching the tip of his horn in my left hand, I seated the bend of my right elbow at its base, the rough hair and his sudden heat against my biceps. I pivoted on that right foot, bringing my left to the same level as its brother as I turned around and faced the way I came, squatting down on the balls of my feet. His great momentum made the rest of the movement unnecessary. As often in the performance of this trick, we were for a moment out of sight from each other. I, having turned my back, he having failed to follow the quickness of my movement. I watched his great shadow on the floor as he floated, tumbling over my head and came crashing at my feet with a sound like an earthquake. He was stunned only for an instant, but my size makes me quick. And he had, and as he clambered to his hands and knees, I turned behind him. His neck was thick indeed, but not too thick for my arm to circle it. For a moment, he scrabbled at my grip, then more weakly, then was still. Afterwards, I followed the thread the princess had given me. That is, I placed my hand on the left wall and followed it however it twisted and turned. 
I paused after a while to tear a few strips from my robe and bandage up the gash on my chest made by his horn as I turned into the throw. It's not a deep wound, as you can see. The blood hasn't even soaked through this thin wall. I do not know if the princess's thread is a certain route to escape all mazes, or only this particular maze. When I reach home, I will set our mathematician to answer it for me. I see you're still doubtful of my story, but if you wait a moment, I will offer you certain proof. The creature's own head. I beg your patience, for I don't quite have it here yet. <laughs> oh, there it is. Can you hear the noise from the royal apartments upstairs? My countryman must have been very quick breaking down the wall at the maze's exit. It wasn't very sporting of you to brick it over, by the way. Forgive me. I missed part of the story. I told you I had my arm around his throat. As he stilled, I released very slightly my pressure until I saw that he had woken from whatever spiralling dreams fill that enormous head. The hold makes most docile and confused, but I am not a man who takes unnecessary chances, so I kept the strangle in place as I said into his soft ear, I know your name, Asterion. Prince Asterion. He stiffened at the sound of it, and I wondered how many long years he had raved in the darkness without his name. How long without light or company it had taken to make him mad, and how understandable was his anger at interlopers from that shining world forever denied to him. They say in the palace above, I said, slowly releasing his neck and sitting him against the wall, that you are the product of the Queen's adultery. He snorted derisively. I know it is not true. A king who demands human sacrifice would not keep such a bastard alive for any purpose. You must truly be his. His own blood. I stepped to the side of him to look him into his eye directly. This is not your true fate. You were meant to have the whole sky, not that tiny patch of it. I offered him my hand to help him stand. I need your help, Prince, to kill a monster. And here he is, bringing his head along with the rest of him. Though more crowned than severed, I see. It seems his father has met with some terrible and inexplicable accident. Congratulations, sire! All hail King Asterion! And princess, how lovely to see you again. Lay aside your weapons, you men, unless you plan treason. Well, don't just stand there. Do you islanders not bow before your kings? Our second story of the evening will be How Gwydion Ellis Came to Be Bought by Morgan Davies, read by David Milburn. 
Morgan is a writer of fiction and lives in Midwest, and he's recently returned home, having spent many years away. Morgan's work is inspired by the landscape around him and his people. He's just begun working on his first novel. David is an actor and playwright and was a founding member of Liars League. His stories, Worms Feast and Red, were performed here and appeared in Arachne Press anthologies, London Lies and Weird Lies. His play, The Flood, was produced at the Hope Theatre Islington, and his short plays, Second Skin and Either Either, Either Or, were performed at Theatre 503. David! How Gwydion Ellis Came to be Born by Morgan Davis The moon plays moth-like on the water. Three peaks on three sides hold the lake, high above the distant sea. It is quiet, bottomless, and black. It is dark. At the unsheltered edge, the water spills gently down through the sedges. It gathers between the folds of the mountain and begins to move towards the trees. It falls under and between them, and when it beats against the rocks, the moon is there with it. It races downwards past the Williams farm, the Davis farm, past the Havard, until it reaches the village where it grumbles under the old bridge and away. In the village of Pennebont, the doors are locked and the curtains closed in the slate brick square houses. From one window alone comes a steady light, and above it hangs the sign of the Red Lion Inn. Inside, two men sit at a table near the window. The first man is small and lined, with a deep cleft in his chin. The second is large and red-headed, and has not removed his waterproofs. The first man rolls his near-empty glass between the palms of his hands as he speaks, and the second man nods. Beneath the table, both men still wear their boots. It is late, and the fire has been allowed to die. The other seats are all empty, and beer mats are drowning in the spillages on the tabletops. On the ceiling above, kettles and tankards hang from the beams like sad brass fruit. Across from the men, the landlord of the Red Lion fills his glass. He wears a short-sleeved shirt and a tie that falls far short of his waist. He is bald and neckless. Two eyes like spider's nests look up from his drink and across to the two men. The fridges hum behind him and the bottles glow under a cold light. No, really, says the first man. It's just so deep, that lake up there, and these cave divers are mental. And one of the divers got the bends, the second man asks. Yeah, he had to be airlifted to hospital. Rubbish. Seriously? The two men stop talking and watch as the door in the far wall begins to tremble. Something heavy is coming down the stairs from the kitchen above. The thumping grows louder and the door swings open, shuddering as it strikes against a nearby table. The door is filled with a vast and heaving bulk of an enormous youth. He wears a stained and shabby apron the size of a bedsheet. His chunky white arms are wrapped around a large tub of what smells like old and overused frying oil, and the men watch as he waddles into the room like a bull on hind legs. His mouth is wide open as he passes the men, showing the mass of his beefy tongue behind it. 
The boy turns round to back through the door by the bar. There is no expression on the eye set deep into his swollen face. The door closes behind him. The landlord grins and comes out from behind the bar, clutching his glass as he moves towards the men. He is full of his own hospitality and knocks his hip against a table, a mouthful of beer leaping from his glass. That's William, that is. The landlord sways and smiles. Works in the kitchen here, just changing the oil in the fryers. He points to their boots. You been up Craig V today? Uh, yes, sir. Walk the three peaks in a circle round the lake, says the first man. Mind if I join you? The landlord does not wait for an answer, but bends forward and gropes behind him until he finds a chair. I was just talking about the lake up there, says the first man. It's unusual for a mountain lake to be so deep like that. Usually they're only a few metres deep. He says some divers got the bends diving it, says the second man, pointing at the first. They did, says the landlord. What, and they had to be airlifted to hospital? That's right, they did. I don't believe it, the second man says, drawing on his drink. Why not, says the landlord. It's just rubbish, isn't it? It's not rubbish, he says. No, it's not, says the first man. It's a good story. It's not even a good story, the second man says. There's lots of good stories about the lake, the landlord says. Two years ago, they did the Kai V Challenge. Runners, all of them, queuing up to go running around the length of the ridge and down. They do the challenge in July, and we had a bright, sunny day for it two years ago. And three people ended up being taken away in an ambulance. They got hypothermia in July. Well, that's not surprising, says the second man. How many miles an hour does the wind blow up there? Your story was worse than his. The smile finally falls from the landlord's face. The best stories are the ones that are never told, the first man says. You're very philosophical after four pints of double dragon, says the second man, pointing at the first man's glass. He's right, says the landlord. Some stories are only for certain people. You're as bad as him, the second man says. If you can't tell a story, then you haven't got a story. All right. You want a good story, do you, says the landlord. I can tell you a good story. Is it true? The second man asks doubtfully. Yeah, it's true. I was there. Go on then, says the second man. The landlord looks behind him to the door that Gwydion left through, then leans closer. The smile appears again beneath the spider's nest eyes. Gwydion there. You saw come in, easy and Alice's boy, from the Alice farm, halfway up the path. You'll have passed it on your way up. He draws his chair closer to the table. Anyway, what happens is, Ian comes in here to drink later, the regular, and one day he comes in saying his wife said this dream. His wife, right, should have seen her. Like a barn door she was. The landlord spreads his arms out and puffs his cheeks. And she's not only big, she's mental. I mean, completely mental. And old Ellis starts telling us about this dream she's had. Well, apparently, she's dreamt that there's Nath Bank in the lake on Clyde V. The men do not react. 
an Athagalic monster. The second man shuffles in his seat. And this lake monster, she's dreamt that it's leaving the lake at night and coming down the mountain. Well, we all laughed, of course, and so did Alice at first. But she kept having these dreams. More and more bonkers they were. Says the Athbank is coming for them. Says he's prowling around the farm at night. Alice ends up clouting her, of course. Get her to shut up, but she won't let go of this Athbank thing. Says it started sniffing at the door. She even starts going off fuck like the all hours, collecting these flowers that she says will keep it away. The landlord is in full swing and jabs a gesture at them with each sentence. Anyway, Ellis is coming in here every night now, just to get away from how bonkers Mrs. Ellis is. But one night he comes in here asking for her. Says she's not at the farm, he can't find her anyway. No one's interested, like, because she's so mental and off he goes again. Later on, near closing time though, he's back again looking really worried. He says to the lads in here that uh, Mrs. Williams saw her going up the mountain earlier and he thinks she's still up there. The door behind them opens and Gwydion shambles up to the bar. The landlord barks something angrily at him in Welsh. He goes behind the bar and pulls a packet of nuts from the display hanging there. The landlord grabs one of the sodden beer mats and flings it at Gwydion. It misses him, but he comes out from behind the bar, leaving the way he came with his packet of nuts. The landlord continues his story. So, a group of us lads get together with Ellis, and we get some torches, and Davis fetches his dogs, and we all go out up the path. Pitch black night it was, and called up there. We went up through the trees and onto the mountain, all calling for Mrs. Ellis, shining torches, and the dogs running round. All of a sudden, we hear this scream blown towards us on the wind. He pauses, and his spider eyes move from the first man to the second and back. We went on up further until we could see the lake in the distance, and we hear more of his screams, so we get closer. Suddenly, Davis calls out that he's found her, and we all come over. Well, she's lying there against this big boulder by the lake, screaming. Horrible he was, looking at her, hearing her. Then Davis shouts, Christ, she's having a baby! We all crowd round, and she is. She's right in the middle of it, making a terrible noise. The woman's screaming and pulling at her hair, pulling great tufts of it out with her hands. He can't move her or get her off the mountain, and we don't know what to do about this baby coming. Then Ellis, he gets to his knees and gets between her legs, and he, he starts getting this baby out while she's screaming. Ellis doesn't know a thing about it, but he knows about lambing. And eventually, <laughs> she gets this baby out. Huge it was, nearly split her in two, although she wasn't a small woman. Slick with blood, that child was, all black in the moonlight. And blinking out of the mess, two black eyes like coals. The landlord slumps against the back of his chair. We got her off the mountain, but she died in the hospital a day or two later. Baby Gwydion, well. He points over his shoulder with his thumb. The men are silent. What do you think of that, then, boys? It is later now, and the inn is dark. The one cold light still glows behind the bar, and the fridges are still humming as the landlord leaves. He steps out into the courtyard. Above him, a single orange lantern gives a feeble light. It shows the fine rain now falling gently onto him. In the distance, the stream cries as it falls under the bridge. 
the door to the outhouse is open. Uh, Gwydion! The landlord moves towards the open door and calls into the blackness of the outhouse. Gwydion! He moves forward into the darkness and pours the stone wall for the light switch. He holds his other hand out in front of him. It touches something soft and clammy. He pulls his hand back, but something grasps his wrist. He cries out and he's shoved against the wall. He feels a great weight pressing against him and shrieks as his face is crushed against the stone. You know you shouldn't tell, says the voice in his ear. The landlord grunts and bleats. He feels himself being dragged backwards and the great weight presses on him again until his knees give way and he bends forwards. His head plunges into the drum of stinking oil. He kicks and quivers and his arms wave helplessly above him like searching antenna. The oil sloshes violently and bubbles as his breath escapes. He draws it deep into his mouth and nose. It fills his lungs and his limbs shudder. The struggling subsides and the body, now limp, is released and falls heavily to the floor. The tub of oil upturns and the liquid oozes out. It flows away from the landlord's body, out of the open door, and begins to settle in the courtyard. The door to the outhouse closes, and the moon swims across the oil. story and the last one before the intro will be Gladys's Strange Hostage by Jennifer Rickard, we read by Lynn Sigoski. Jennifer lives in London and is a freelance content writer by day and a more interesting writer by night. Her first novel was written age six and was a tale of epic adventure starring her guinea pigs. She still writes epic adventures but with less guinea pigs. Lynn's credits include talking books, TV narrations, and BBC Radio 4 World Service programmes aplenty. She's equally passionate about taking her actor-playwright background to all corners of the business world via her consultancy, Play for Real, helping business people use voice and body to create presence and fun in their working lives. Lynn! Gladys's Strange Hostage by Jennifer Rickard. Gladys was upset. No, not upset. Angry. Gladys was angry. And when Gladys got angry, people got roasted. She eyed the cowering messenger. Plumes of smoke drifting from her nostrils. Say that again, she demanded. The snivelling messenger snivelled. There's a ban on smoking, Mom. You can't have any cigarettes. The king ordered it. He said it was all terribly bad for us uh, and that we would all live much better lives if we partook in some refreshing herbal tea rather 
rather than poison our lungs with foul smoke and grime, begging mum's pardon. So he just banged them. The city's civilians are no longer allowed to smoke. Gladys let the mum slide. People just didn't know how to speak to dragons these days. <laughs> but at least she hadn't mentioned the paradox of an animal that could naturally breathe fire and smoke, requesting 200 Marlborough in its next haul from the city. I'm not a civilian, she smiled. Well, we, we sort of are. I, I, I mean, you want all the flags and everything. <laughs> I am, said Gladys very calmly, a fucking dragon. <laughs> I am a fucking dragon going through cold turkey, and a dragon going through cold turkey is not a happy dragon. Got it? Bite flies! <laughs> the messenger shook from head to toe, but stood his ground. Gladys was faintly impressed. I'm sorry, Mum. He says you can have more goats if you want. In recompense. He waved a hand at the unfortunate creatures already standing by Gladys's cave with the rest of the horde. One of them bleated plaintively. Gladys reached forward and hooked a claw under the messenger's shirt, dragging him closer to her steaming nose. Tell you what, cupcake. I'm gonna let you live just so you can go back and tell your measly mouthful of a king that he's made a big mistake. All right. She smiled, showing rows of teeth, some with rotting goat flesh still stuck between. The messenger squealed. Gladys nodded grimly. Message received. The quivering messenger eventually reported something about the dragon not being a happy turkey and goats wanting cigarettes. Once he could be made to speak without screaming, but the king got the gist anyway. He sat back in his throne, said, Psh, and moved on to the next topic. That night, the king's daughter went missing. Gladys wasn't quite sure how to handle her new hostage. The princess was blonde, pretty, and so skinny that there would barely be any point eating her, which was all par for the course when it came to princesses. But she'd also reacted very oddly to being kidnapped. When Gladys had turned up, she merely sighed and reached for her bag, then passively allowed Gladys to pluck her from her room with one deft claw without screaming for the guards once. She'd actually yawned during the resulting flight over the kingdom, and when they'd reached the cave, she just said, Some stone cushions in here could burn hide in the place up. <laughs> then fell asleep meekly in a corner. And now she was sitting by the entrance to the cave and embroidering 
singing the sort of songs that made birds sit on her shoulders and fluffy bunnies pop randomly into existence. Gladys <laughs> tucked her claws irritably on a nearby rock. She wanted a cigarette. Look, shouldn't you be panicking or something? She snapped at last. She didn't really make a habit of talking to her hostages. It would be a bit like striking up a conversation with the steak on your plate. But she was curious and fed up and nicotine-deprived. <laughs> the princess raised her perfectly perfect head. Should I be? Gladys rolled her yellow eyes. You are being held hostage by an angry dragon. The princess shrugged. Yes, but you won't actually hurt me. You'll keep me here for a while. Then my prince will turn up, slay you in a terrific battle and carry me off to safety. And then we'll get married and live happily ever after. Everyone knows that. <laughs> Gladys grinned. I'd like to meet the prince that would slay me. Several had tried in her lifetime, but she didn't become a grown dragon these days without learning a few prince-slaying techniques. Her favourite trick was to hover over them and bite their heads off while they were still reaching for their oh-so-shiny swords. The princess tossed back her swaying blonde hair. He will. You'll see. Gladys snorted. What's going to happen is that your daddy is going to crack like the nut he is and give me 200 marble for your safe return. The princess sighed pityingly. Have you ever thought about replacing cigarettes with carrot juice? <laughs> oh my god, said Gladys and went deeper into the cave to terrorise some goats. But she couldn't stay away. It had to be the lack of nicotine. It was making her fixate on things. That, and the fact that the princess was mad as a box of monkeys. She sat on her rock by the cave entrance from dawn to dusk, embroidering steadily the whole time. She sang constantly with a host of birds to sing back at her. She petted the goats and treated them so kindly that Gladys almost felt guilty for eating them. She even rearranged the rocks around the cave to improve the same shape. Whatever that was. <laughs> and she chatted at Gladys. God, how she chatted. You couldn't shut her up. She went on and on about how amazing her life was going to be when the prince turned up. How happy they'd be together. What a joyous existence she would have. Meanwhile, the days stretched on and there was no prince on the horizon. Look, Gladys said at last, how about instead of waiting for the prince to rescue you, you just ran out of the cave while I was distracted? It'd be really easy and you're already sitting right by the entrance. The princess looked offended. But the prince has to save me. 
save yourself, Gladys suggested. But the princess had started singing again, and those bloody raucous birds successfully drowned Gladys out. She was baffling, Gladys decided. She really was. Do you ever eat anything with vitamins in it? The girl demanded one day. Once Gladys had finished devouring the doomed goat du jour and was lazily picking bits of flesh out of her teeth with a claw. Don't need to, Gladys said, feeling pleasantly full and thus inclined to chat. I'm a dragon. The princess sniffed. I just see. It's not good for you. Your chakras will get all clogged. <laughs> Look what all that blood is done to your claws. Gladys stared at her claws. They were a bit of a mess, but then they always were. Have you ever even had a manicure? The girl sighed and fished around in her bag, bringing out some equipment. Right, give me a paw. Gladys, nonplussed, obeyed. Five minutes later, her claws were red with nail polish instead of blood. She wasn't sure what to think about this. Yeah, said the princess, sounding pleased. Perfect. You look great. Gladys examined her new shiny talons. She supposed it didn't look too bad. One night, when the princess was huddling amongst the rocks and blathering on about what type of cake she would have at her wedding, Gladys interrupted. What about afterwards? After what? asked the human morsel. After the wedding, Gladys said. What do you do after that? How do you spend your days? The princess stared at her. I, I, I wait to become queen, I guess. Yes, and while you're doing that. Um. The princess gazed blankly at the cave wall for a while. I suppose I could embroider. <laughs> what do you embroider now? Pointed out Gladys. So? Well, if all I was going to do after I got married was embroider, I'd make sure I did something else before then. The girl blinked at her. Like what? Like, Gladys cast around for an activity. Like travel, I suppose. There's lots of interesting places to see besides here. Are there? Asked the princess. I've never travelled. I've travelled all too much, Gladys bemoaned. Dragons tend to. We're not very welcome guests. The princess shuffled a foot in the dirt. So, where have you been? Gladys told her. She found herself telling all of it. Years and years spent flying around different countries just finding a nice warm cave and then getting unceremoniously thrown out of it by locals with pitchforks or stupid shiny knights. She talked about cities she'd seen, mountains, seas, 
fiery volcanoes, great creaking glaciers, hot, wet jungles, dry, arid deserts. She talked about snow and monsoons and fog and what it was like to fly above the clouds. She talked about it all. And the princess sat there and listened to every single word. Of course, the prince turned up. He was bound to eventually. Gladys peeked out of the cave, distrustfully. He's late, she said. And, oh my God, he's glistening. <laughs> glistening was the perfect word for what the prince was doing. He glistened from head to toe, from his shimmering hair to his glittering boots. Then he smiled, and his teeth could have outshone the sun. <laughs> Only five hours with a hygienist and a whitening machine could have produced such teeth as those. <laughs> Bloody hell, Gladys said, and you're marrying that. The princess peeked out of the cave and giggled. That's not very eager. Gladys grunted. You're still late, though. All right, then. Go on. The princess stared at her. Aren't you meant to go and have a massive battle where he slays you in a boring, grisly fashion? Gladys shrugged. Don't feel like being slain today. <laughs> you might as well just go. Don't really want the cigarettes anymore anyway. The princess paused. Oh. Right. She hesitated again. Look, I made this for you. She presented Gladys with a piece of cloth on which was a beautifully embroidered dragon smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Gladys looked down at the cloth and was horrified to discover her vision was blurring. She blinked hastily. Bye, then, said the princess and went out of the cave, picking her way down the rocks to her glistening beloved. Gladys looked around the cave. It suddenly felt very empty. The proposal was beautiful. The wedding was beautiful. And everyone agreed that they were a beautiful couple. The prince was very courteous and kind and oh, so shiny. <laughs> and all the court was in raptures over the occasion. All in all, it was everything the princess had dreamed of and more. And she enjoyed every moment. Until one day, once the excitement of the festivities had passed, she found herself sitting down again with her needle and thread. Gladys sighed and looked over her collection of goats. There would barely be enough to last the winter, and anyway, this cave was feeling emptier and emptier by the day. Maybe it was time to move on. Just then, she heard a very familiar voice shouting her name. She stuck her head out of the cave entrance. The princess was standing there, grinning. I've never been to the jungle, 
she said. I hear there are monkeys there. And I'd love to see a volcano erupt. And do you think we could climb around on a glacier? Gladys stared. Oh, said the princess. Also, I brought you some cigarettes. <laughs> I stole them from the prince. She held up the carton victoriously. Gladys smiled. or cleric, you have the 20 minutes to blow oddly shaped smoke rings, trade magical items, and to play the adventure games we have provided you, and hand in your what-do-you-do answers. Best be quick, though. The guardians of this place are sure to grow hungry once again. Stockholm Syndrome by Jim Cogan. He had no idea how long they'd kept him captive in the village. From the great stone prison they built for him, high on an earthen mound overlooking the centre, he could sense the bustle all around him in the huts, latrines and cookhouses. The sounds and smells from the food stores and the pens where they kept the animals. Dozens, maybe hundreds of animals, so many for a settlement of that size. At night, the silence was total. No feasting or music. No muted grunts of pleasure from human or beast. A deadness reigned over everything. As it had in the metamorphic womb of the mountain, where they'd come upon him, resting. By day, they would cluster around him and look. Men, women and children... Faces of those who'd journeyed far for a glimpse. Knapsacks in colours he'd never seen before. Slick black oblongs that looked to be carved out of jet but weren't. Held up to flash at him through the glass. In summer, the adults wore glistening blinkers of a similar colour. They seldom stared for long. Partly because the sight of him was such a disappointment. A great meandering slab of curled-up rock, barely recognisable for what it was, like a half-carved idol, or, as some of them occasionally joked, <laughs> a gigantic pile of dung. Few lingered long enough for their hearts and eyes to settle, for the tell-tale features to suggest themselves against the grey-black mass the unlikely symmetry of the ridges on his back, the slickness of the tongue tips twisting down over his carbuncled lip, the orbic bulge in the side of his head that was not a cooled magma bubble, but a closed eye, the size of a glacier rock. Yes, they told themselves, something of a disappointment. But mostly, they moved on because of fear. Fear of what they knew about him, yet refused to know. A fear they were unwilling to acknowledge, 
on top of all the other petty terrors their mortal existences heaped upon them. He received their fear, and, though it was alien to him, he understood it, accepting it for the gift it was. No one had ever seen him move. Through the lone window in the north wall of his cell, snow-capped peaks were visible. Clouds writhing their last on the summits, cliffs bearded with pine. Some way off was the stockade that protected the village from the outside. Several thousand vertical wooden poles of uniform diameter, their surfaces smooth as sand and stained a warm honey brown. Tops trimmed in a curve to follow the undulating rampart beyond, swathed in pristine green turf. At the bottom of the mound was a stone enclosure with its own miniature lake, inhabited by two polar bears. Although he couldn't read the inscription on the sign outside, he nonetheless knew their names were Brad and Angelina, and that they had been named by a competition among the local school children. On the day they first installed him, Brad and Angelina had begun roaring and refused to stop. Gradually, the other animals had followed suit until the air was alive with chattering, howling, hissing, trilling, spitting, squeaking and croaking. For days afterwards, many of the animals refused to eat. The keepers struggled to hold their nerve. After a week or two, the animals grew bored and got on with their lives. Later still, some tiger cubs were born and even fewer visitors came to see him. The window which made up the entire north wall of his cell, was made of reinforced glass, a palladium alloy several inches thick with a blast-resistant factor of 150. Beyond it was a terrace dotted with chairs, tables and parasols, as well as a kiosk selling beer, ice cream, fries and ice cream, fries and paper cones, and a wide range of other mouth-watering treats and snacks. Much of this he saw through the hairline crack beneath the lid of his right eye. Sometimes visitors would catch a glow there, a vague impression of awareness before shoving the idea from their minds. But most of it, he simply knew. He knew about the vast bituminous rectangle outside the stockade where the people alighted from their chariots and left them in geometric ranks as if waiting for a battle that would never come. Chariots that were beast and conveyance all in one, demanding neither hay nor water, their battle armour fused with their hide as his was, their grills and spoilers emblazoned with the shields of their respective tribes, diamonds and intercepting circles, griffins, lions, and the occasional prancing horse. He knew that the blood in their veins was a distant cousin to the igneous rivers lying dormant in his own, and that they slept and awoke as the people decreed. He longed to set these metal creatures free, just as he longed to set the people free, free of their fear, even if that meant freeing them of their lives. Fear clung to them, he saw it in the furtive glances they shot at one another's backs, even those whose car keys bore the same tribal emblem. He saw it in the compulsive, jittery way they checked their watches and wallets, 
heard it in the way they snapped at their children, sensed it from the way they prodded at their black plastic devices and swallowed their food without chewing. Whatever the nature of these fears, he knew that they were useless, eating away at their innards and distracting them from the real monster in their midst. Memories kept him amused, dreamy memories from before his great sleep, of the miracles he'd seen fear accomplish, fathers running clean through the blast furnace of his breath to rescue wives and children, the shield maiden who kept on coming at him even after his tail blade had locked off her arm at the shoulder. These people were the same, but bewitched, asleep, buried alive in their own flesh. Look at me, he urged them. See me, say my name, and free me. He was wise enough to know there was no such thing as magic, only what was known to work. So far, not one of them had dared to name him. Certainly not the president of the coal conglomerate, who had looked upon the newly decapitated mountain and sensed his fall deep within the rock. Then, abruptly resigned his post to live in a faraway land that derived its power solely from wind. <laughs> not the chief geologist, who after extraction had noted the claw-like appendages on either side of this miraculous new fossil, yet failed to explain its imperviousness to x-rays, dynamite, or tungsten carbide. Nor even the zoo director, who had rolled his eyes when the trustees voted to accept the monster rock as a gift from their conservation partners, the coal conglomerate. He could never quite explain his decision to model the display cage on a nuclear bunker. Every month, a dozen zookeepers would abseil down from the roof and scrub him with wire brushes, <laughs> unaware of how much it tickled. They would shudder at his chilly exterior, trying to suppress the nagging suspicion that it was only skin deep. Those who were most afraid would tap dance on his back or hammer out a chart-topping baseline on his tailplates. Months went by. Then years. Still, no one dared to name him in word or in thought. No one. Until the boy. It was midsummer. The crowds outside the hilltop prison were thicker than usual, emboldened by sunshine and beer. The boy was eleven his matchstick limbs sprouting from Converse sneakers into knee-length black shorts, black hair long enough to graze the Ramones t-shirt his grandfather had given him. He stood a little way back from the crush between the tables. His parents and siblings had disappeared in search of lemurs, but the boy's eyes never strayed from the great ridged back just visible above the gawkers' heads. In the prisoner, something stirred. The crack beneath his eyelid widened a fraction. A small girl gasped and tugged at her mother's sleeve. None of the adults noticed. He knew the time had come, and he was grateful. The boy's lips barely moved as he whispered the word, but the thought from which it sprang echoed through the cell.
dragon's skin cracked as he smiled. A few of the onlookers thought they heard thunder and stepped back, eyes searching the heavens. He caught a fleeting glimpse of the boy before a tall, fat man passed between them, licking ice cream. He gave a small cough. The window of his cell blew out in a supersonic puff of reinforced nano-splinters that dissolved the people directly in front of the building and ripped great chunks from anyone walking behind. A silent shockwave travelled down the hill, overturning prams and hurling day-trippers into walls. The tanks in the reptile house exploded, vomiting cotton mouths and anacondas. A family of leopards toppled from their tree outside the compound. 300 car alarms went off in unison. For a while, a day's stillness. Up on the hill, the dragon yawned. His erstwhile observers were raining down around him in a seat of blood, bone and excrement. He pushed himself upright, shrugging the roof off his cell. Everything below him was a fog of red. He blew gently and without fire, until the mist parted and the boy stared back at him, ankle deep in a crimson sludge. He wore the remains of the fat man's body like a damp mantle, his eyes gleaming white through the gore. A bloody spit bubble fattened and burst in his gaping mouth. From down the hill, a single low wail was swiftly joined by stricken laments of every pitch and timbre, the screams of men and of panicked animals. From deep within the dragon's body, great wings burst, shattering the walls and sending blocks of concrete high into the air, over the boy's head and down the hill in all directions, crushing those too slow or stunned to run away. He looked to one side. More enclosures. More animals huddled in corners, climbing the walls or throwing their bodies against the bars in a vain attempt to escape. The dragon closed his eyes and laughed a great laugh. And when he looked again, everything he had laughed at was blackened and gone, the air laden with the scent of burned fur. The sun and sky had vanished. He flapped his wings lifting his body clear of the rubble. As he did so, the boy threw off the fat man's skin and began staggering away. The dragon spoke to him, not in words, but in the form of a thought bomb that hit the boy with such force that it lifted him clear off the ground. Run! The boy landed, his ankles held, and he ran. The dragon turned in the air, his tail shearing the roof off the tropical pavilion. A thousand exquisitely coloured butterflies rose, withered and tore in the poisonous breeze. Through the smoke, he saw Brad and Angelina making a dash across their lake for the safety of their cave. He blew them a kiss and watched them boil. He beat his wings, flying higher, through the roof of his own desolation until he saw the sun and sky once again, the peaks and lowlands dropping away towards the coast. In the distance, the skyline of a city, its windows glinting in the fire. Blue lights on the fringes of the smoke, sirens gaining in volume. Forty kilometres away, 
An offshore wind farm winked its impotent fins. He soared beyond the tips of the mountains, gathering speed. Looking back, he saw the wind ripping holes in the smoke, the boy running as bidden across the grassy picnic area towards the exit, dodging the dead and the dying. The dragon jackknifed in midair, boomeranged back on himself and began to dive, eyes fixed on his quarry. Millennia of experience told him the boy had a one in seven chance of escaping. Good odds. And if he should survive, the rewards of his fear, this acute, extreme and nourishing fear, would be incalculable. The dragon smiled. And let gravity take him. Glory. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. The liars will return on the 11th of August with accident and emergency. If you are a writer, our next open theme is lock and key. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings, are on the liars' website. And so, the final story of the evening will be Life After Twenty by J.J. Jordan, read by Will Goodman. J.J. lives in Florida with his wife and two children. His other work will appear in Alternative Polarities 4, Weird Science, and 101 Words. Will is the only man to make multiple adventure of kids' cartoon fame Mr. Ben jealous. Internet entrepreneur, radio DJ, beauty and the geek star, and etiquette coach to Britain's next top models. Will regularly performs stand-up and story readings on the London circuit. Yes, ready. Will! Life After Twenty by J.J. Jordan Here are the rules to my life. The sky rumbles overhead as the gods roll their dice. Most commonly the twenty-sided variety. I can hear the most powerful god of all, the dungeon master, narrate what's going on. Sounding like the guy that does movie trailers... I basically do whatever the DM says, and I can't resist the commands. Trust me, I've tried. One day, I woke up as the sky thundered with dice rolls, and I swore I had a few more days before game night. I'd been sleeping outside, right outside a dungeon door for a week, and the DM started my day off like this. Edward was surprised at the arrival of a new adventurer. Some skin-clad barbarian babe with a giant sword appeared next to me. Hi, I'm Boobies McStabs-a-lot. <laughs> Don't ask. 
My player named me, she said. Sounded like the DM invited over his 13-year-old cousin again. Hi, I'm Edward... No, don't care. You're probably going to die. Let's just get this over with. The DM spoke. After a brief introduction, they entered the dungeon, risking it all to find the lost treasure. And that was the joke of it all, you see. We risked our lives for these great treasures, but most of us died along the way. Then, if you were lucky enough to get there, the gods would make you spend all your treasure on crazy magic, the sole purpose of which was to help you get more treasure. I just wanted to buy a damned flat in town, pop out some kids that grew up to be accountants or something boring like that. Of course, I hadn't died yet. Somebody once told me that I wear two layers of plot armour. Must be strong as hell, considering all the stuff I've been through. We walked into the pitch-black dungeon and held our torches in front of us. Some of the tiles on the floor clearly operated as mechanisms for a trap. Follow my steps, I said tiptoeing around the trigger plates. McStab strutted along, not following me at all, and stepped on the switch. The whole floor gave way to a giant pit with spikes at the bottom. No, not again, I yelled. Whenever a partner died, I waited an hour while the gods rolled their dice to make me a new one. I just couldn't stand to be alone again. Then, a pair of hands grabbed the edge of the pit trap, and McStabs pulled herself out, not a scratch on her. How did you live? I asked. McStabs shrugged. I had a lot of hit points. Deeper into the dungeon, we slaughtered a clan of goblins, crushed a stone ogre into dust, and saved a bunch of NPCs. Non-player characters are basically uninteresting dots. McStabs and I are the stars of the show, after all. The DM said, The heroes easily conquer foe after foe, unknowingly heading straight into the lair of the Guardian. I wiggled my fingers like I cast a spell and said, Ooh, foreshadowing. Then the thundering in the heavens stopped for a while, and I guess the gods took a little break to clear out their colons. I couldn't stand the silence, so I struggled conversing with McSnaps a lot. So I talked about something I was passionate about, something really interesting myself. (laughs) I picked up the super attack feat at level 2. That means by level 6 I'll hit for extra damage then at level 7 Oh my god! McSabs yelled. What? I gripped my sword with both hands and looked around for a monster. You are such a dork, she said. A dork? What's that? Is that some kind of special race? Does it have cool bonuses? Maybe I'm a 
dork. No, you are a full dork, she said. <laughs> awesome. Further down, we rescued some dwarven prisoners, stopped a dark elf wizard from underworld domination, and poached some excellent salamander eggs. Life could be interesting when fate operated by a 20-sided die. While eating breakfast, these eggs were huge, by the way. Think about a rugby ball stood on end. I had to ask McStabs what it would take for her to fall for a guy like me. The DM would have to tell me to love you. That's the only way? Yep. Finally, we reached the garden. You know, the one the DM wouldn't shut up about. With our swords drawn, McStabs and I approached the great beast from behind. The walls were lined with crystals formed during ancient infernos. We could see the dragon's face by the only light available, the stream of flame emanating from his nostrils. The light shimmered off the crystals throughout the cave. Why are you here? It bellowed. Because the DM made us, I said. Unacceptable! Because we want your treasure, McStab said. Then she charged straight ahead with her sword raised, bringing the blade down on the dragon's snout. It roared and reared its head. I jumped onto its hind claw as it began flapping its wings and rising up into the air. Barely hanging on, I shoved my dagger beneath every scale I could reach, and blood trickled out from each one, gathering together before streaming off the nails of the dragon's claw. I fell off the claw as the blood made holding on slippery. The dragon landed in front of McStabs and me. He lurched his giant head back, and a deep gurgling emanated from his belly. McStabs charged, but I shoved her to the side. No, I yelled. I ran towards the dragon and threw my dagger. As the flames shot out of its mouth, my dagger went into its throat. The fires scorched my body, and I learned about the smell of burning flesh and air. It really didn't hurt. I always wondered what it must feel like to die. But I wasn't dead yet. We did it, McStab said. She stood over me. Your dagger must have made it all the way into its lungs. After I die, tell my mother that I love her, I managed to say. Who's your mum? I don't know. (laughs) I gasped for another breath. My player hasn't written her into my backstory. (laughs) McStab shook her head. She muttered some elvish words and colourful auras moved around her hands. The magic flowed over my skin and I returned to full health. You didn't tell me you could do that. You never asked. You just kept going on and on about your extra damage or whatever. Then, an ethereal ghost of the dragon appeared, demanding to grant a wish to the slayers of its material prison. This wish is your treasure. Ask for anything you desire, it said. I thought about great piles of treasure 
I thought about wishing for McStabs to love me, but that would never be real. She would love me the same way that I was an adventurer, only through slavery. And I thought about that flat in town and <laughs> those little accountant kids. I wish to retire from adventuring with McStabs somewhere in town. Poof! It was done. McStabs wasn't too happy about it. But I won her round eventually. She starts a bar fight every now and then. But me, I'm happy, living my excitement through books. Life is a lot different as an NPC. One day, in the town square, I saw a guy I'd never seen before, walking around in bewilderment. He wore leather armour and had a bow slung across his back. First day of existence? I asked him. Yeah, he said. And what's up with all that noise? He pointed to the sky. There was a rumbling of thunder. Oh boy, I said. You're in for a treat. That's the sound of a twenty. <laughs> Our quest is at an end. You are free to leave the dungeons. Or you could stick around and roll dice for the spoils. But before you go, give rapturous applause to tonight's authors and actors. Good night!